Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Well, Matt, I know you have been patiently or perhaps excitedly waiting for us embarking into this next sort of chunk of our study through Thrive Deeper as mm. we look at well, a couple of smaller profit books to look at first in Habakkuk and Obadiah, yep. but then we're jumping into Book Jeff, of Jeremiah. One of your favorites. Habakkuk, Stu. There's a good name. Habakkuk. Is that, did Maybe I say that's it right? a name Habakkuk. for someone's child yeah. uh, out there. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Obadiah's been used a few times. I know some kids called Obadiah, uh, yeah, but, not, yeah. not, but not Habakkuk, I must say. It's like, I don't think I've ever heard of a Habakkuk. I don't think I have yeah. either. Listeners, great to have you back with us as we uh, embark on the next episode of Thrive Deeper. And we're going to be continuing our journey through the uh, 7th century prophets. And today we're going to be looking at the books of Habakkuk, Obadiah, and then moving into mm. the first five chapters of the book of Jeremiah. And yeah. as, as Matt said, one of the ones he's one of the one of his favorite Old Testament prophetic books. So let's let's jump into Habakkuk, um, mm. Matt. We, we, these are pretty short books, both Habakkuk and Obadiah. Um, there's only three chapters in the book of Habakkuk, and obviously this was written probably late seventh, maybe early sixth century BC during the reign of King Josiah, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the interesting thing about this book in, in, in terms of the other prophets is it's actually a bit unique in that it's a dialogue between yeah. the prophet and God rather mm. than a whole lot of oracles yeah. of what God said. It's almost Habakkuk kind of calling a time out with mm. God and kind of going, hang on, uh, why are you going to allow you know another evil nation in a sense, and we'll get mm. into that in a minute, to, to punish Judah when they're even worse than us, and in fact our enemies. I yeah, mean, that's, that's right. almost cruel you know, yeah. kind of thing. What it, what yeah, you know? it's an it's an interesting book. It's it operates a little bit like wisdom literature, and and the book of Job obviously comes to mind that that kind of dialogue yeah. about how God allows evil and, um, you know, the problem here for Habakkuk is, you know, as you said, that he's using these nations to punish his own people, but they're even, you know, but hang on, but are they even much yeah. better than us? And yeah. and 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 how. It's the problem of, you know, God using evil to answer evil in a sense. Uh, It's sort of the necessary evil. So he's using these instruments that are really uh, evil instruments in a way. And, of course, this is an interesting theme, Stu, because we see this even with the way that God uses even demonic spirits actually at points, which is really interesting. I mean, there's the famous story of Micaiah, the prophet Micaiah before Jehoshaphat and Ahab in the book of Kings, where uh, he has this vision of the heavenly courts. God says, you know, who will be a lying spirit in the mouth of the false prophets uh, to deceive Ahab and lead him to his death? And this Spirit comes and says, "Yes, I'll be a lying spirit." And go. It's it's a bit of the back. You know, he's giving this back, and it's it's a weird story. Yeah. But the the important thing about, and a lot of people find it perplexing, because God is essentially using an evil spirit to bring Ahab to his, or to bring the evil to to, to the, the surface, surface. and yeah. to bring Ahab to his end as, as a sort of tool for judgment. But this is, you know, one of the things that this shows is that God is sovereign. It's yes, not like totally. there's this evil realm that's kind of out of God's control and, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. No, he allows that, actually, uh, for a time. And this is where we get to the message. It's just for a time. Mm. Okay, He mm. allows that because it has the the presence of 
Well, certainly in that case, the presence of these demonic forces, at least in that context, that seems to be implicit in allowing those to remain. This is true in a number of different spots, is that it, in a sense, brings the problem of evil to the surface. This is the the main thing that God wants to deal with in the world, but he wants human beings to realize that they've got a problem. Yeah. And you see this, of course, as well in the book of Revelation, you see the same thing happen. God use, uses sort of demonic or evil forces to bring problems to the surface, you know, to have this kind of polarizing effect. Um, and that's kind of an idea that's at work too in the book of Habakkuk, the fact that and, and Habakkuk has a problem with this, of yeah, course. You know, God, why, a, you know, right you should God be just a wicked nation. Yeah, to, you should be destroying uh, sure, evil, evil doers. Problems, but not, yeah. don't, don't use those guys. It's yeah. almost offensive. It's like you that's know, right. You yeah. should be destroying evil doers, yeah, not totally. using them yeah. uh, to destroy people who are ostensibly less evil yeah. uh, than the people that they're destroying. And the the response is interesting because God says. Well, no, no, there's going to be a great day of judgment. And in a sense, you could argue that God is using the greater evildoer um, to awaken Judah to their sorry state so that they would turn and repent, or at least a remnant would turn and repent. Mm. And of course, we know that a remnant, a significant remnant did, in fact, experience during the time of exile just after this. Uh, yes, the Babylon came, as is predicted here. They destroyed the city and many people were killed, but the remnant, the the survivors went into exile and really experienced a remarkable revival, a remarkable spiritual revival as they uh, turned back to God and cried out to God. And so um, this this act of judgment or, or this you know, this instrument that God used actually does bring about that. And and in that sense, it prepares them to be in a better place to face mm. essentially ultimate judgment yeah, yeah interesting and interesting. i think it, i think it also speaks to the fact that um you know god's ways are not always our ways we're are not our ways in fact and that we need to be able to trust god even when we don't understand the the, the method yeah. or the way he uses things yeah. but also not to get into this comparative righteousness thing it's like just because they're worse than me doesn't make me okay <laughs> it's yeah. like you know am i right with god and yeah and i think that's kind of what what uh habakkuk you know came to realize towards the end it's like it's not about the comparative badness, it's evil is evil, and God's going to punish them both. Yeah, that's right. And there's that ultimate perspective, isn't there? Yeah. That, that, you know, there's this, uh, that, well, it is a, I mean, he's, he's referring to, to the downfall of Babylon, which yes. did indeed happen, happen correct. of course. But there's that, as is always the case with prophets, they're, they're, they're pointing to something beyond that, a yes. kind of ultimate judgment. And of course, you know, that's, that's the perspective that sort of puts all of this, uh, in perspective, there's mm. a similar similar theme actually in Psalm 73, a similar complaint. Lord, uh, why do you allow evildoers to triumph and people who are at least less evil to uh, to suffer under them and, and and not really do anything? And similar kind of complaint. And essentially, what happens in Psalm 73 is that he has this the, the psalmist has this encounter with God and he sees he says he and then I saw their final end and he realizes actually 
he, as a man of God and, and as the people of God, they're in a very privileged situation that, mm-hmm. it, that even though they suffer at the hands of evildoers, yet there's this ultimate judgment and that they are going to be vindicated yeah. on that ultimate day of judgment. So that's, that's the theme here. It's beautiful, Stu, at the end, very famous section that I think is a wonderful takeaway from this book uh, at the end um, where he says, yet... Uh, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And then in the meantime, he says, though the fig tree does not bud and there there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the soils, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Mm -hmm. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. This is a really important perspective because it's not about it, not just about now. Life isn't just about now. Now is a time for faithfulness and faith, and actually, ultimate fulfillment lies in the future. And we're not always going to see that within our lifetime, but it's a sure thing. And that's the yeah. that's the message of this book. Yeah, exactly. And the and the call there, I think, I guess, is is obedience and faithfulness, as you mm. say, rather than necessarily how we might measure success or, That's or right. our own sense of righteousness. Yeah. It's not, you know, God calls us to be obedient, yeah. not necessarily successful, yeah, that's because right. this is a mission field, as yeah. you say. Let's yeah. move into the book of Obadiah, another short prophetic book, mm. only 20, 21 verses, I think it is. And really, Matt, this is an extension of sort of the Jacob Esau it is, yeah. Uh, kind of issue, you know, with Judah and Edom. Yeah. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Jacob Esau uh, story, I think you can find that in, uh, where will that be, Matt? That'll be in oh, it's from G- Genesis, from Genesis 32, 32 onwards, on. yeah. Yep. You'll find out about that. But essentially what's happened here, there's another prof- prophetic warning about the doom that's coming on Edom. Mm. And this is really over their pride and their arrogance, it would it would seem, and they've gone haughty and they're believing themselves. They think they're invincible. Mm. Uh, and, and and also they took advantage of Israel's distress. So mm. um, from what we know, it would, it would seem that this was perhaps written after the Babylonians had, yeah. um, had yeah. taken Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem. And, and what happened is the king of Judah at the time was trying to escape. And it seems that the Edomites mm. had actually betrayed him and allowed him to be capt- yeah. captured and, and uh, taken. And uh, of course, that was a breach of Mosaic law, which would have mm. required them to really be looking after their kinsmen. And so. It's a terrible betrayal. A terrible really, betrayal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm. And so, but I think important from what Obadiah says here, and this is, this is not an act of random vengeance from God, no. this is actually judgment for their actions. You know? Yeah, the, the Jacob Esau. Th- Strand that mm. runs uh, mm. right through Scripture, and and it, 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 I mean, it even runs into the New Testament, Romans chapter nine. Uh, Paul talks about Jacob and Esau, yes. and he's actually talking about Israel and the Edomites. There, it's not about individuals. Right. It's an interesting theme in in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, and 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 into the New, as I said, because. It shows how the promise works, that it's a promise that's given by grace. And Esau rightfully, as the eldest brother, had the sort of, in in one sense, the The right right to the blessing. But that's not how the blessing is passed down. It's not to the person that has the right. You know, it's given by grace, completely by grace. Mm. And Esau always had the opportunity. So, so, you know, Jacob, for better or for worse, and, and of course, Jacob you know, didn't receive the promise because he was a good guy. I mean, this is, they, right. they, they, were, exactly. they were both bad guys in a sense, yeah. but, you know, Jacob uh, sort of inherits the promise. And, and of course, Jacob becomes known as Israel and becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. And Esau, when at, at one particular point, this is, this is what happens in Genesis 32 with the, the, you know, the wrestling of the yeah. angel yes. and, and, 
Um, to cut a long story short, Jacob and Esau actually at that moment are reconciled. And as a result of that, actually, Esau is enormously blessed. Yes. He moves down south. You know, they were both blessed so much by God that they couldn't live in, the, even though they're reconciled, mm. they couldn't live in the same territory. And so you have here at work the, you know, the biblical promise in Gen- Genesis chapter, chapter 12. You know, those who bless you, God says, about his people, the people that carry the promise. Those who bless you, I will bless, yes. but those who curse you, I will curse. Right. So Esau blesses his brother Jacob and there's reconciliation. And he's, you know, he's blessed as a result, even though he'd sold his birthright. But he ends up with abundant, absolute abundance, yes. right? Yep. Because of that that reconciliation. And so there's always that opportunity there. And and in a sense that lies behind a lot of the um, interactions. So one of the during the time of Moses when they were wandering in the desert, they went through the asked to have passage through the Edomite territory and they refused. Instead they fought against them. And so it's the curse pretty much from that point on, that's when it went it goes bad. Yes, so the Edomites yeah. become who were meant to be their brothers. Yes. Uh, and to show them hospitality, of course, in Jewish thought, you know, to show the Israelites, their brothers, hospitality, hospitality yeah. but they didn't. Uh, they cursed them, essentially, and so they remain under this curse. And mm-hmm. so there's a there's – a, and this is extended in the story that you told. They're just perpetuating that behavior of essentially yeah. cursing. Uh, it's actually in Psalm 137, uh, which is the psalm that says, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat and wept when we remember Zion. Uh, and it goes on to say in that psalm about the Edomites that uh, that the Edomites were crying out, tear it down, tear it down. They cried, tear it down to its foundations, which is a curse, of course. Yes. They declared the Edomites were d- declaring a curse and they were gloating hmm. and celebrating the destruction of Jerusalem. And so as a result, there's a curse on them and that's what and, Obadiah yeah. is and not even to. not only celebrating they were invited by the Babylonians as a bit of a reward for giving them the king of Judah to go and yeah. ransack the city themselves so they were actually not just gloating from a distance they were actually got involved in it. yeah that's right ransacking yeah. The city, and yet so. it's you know clear right through this history that the descendants of Esau had always the opportunity to be a part and yeah. to have this kinship uh, but they rejected that and that's a very very interesting theme throughout mm. Uh, throughout the Bible. So yet amidst, again, the pronouncement of judgment, there's a glimpse of hope. Yep. Uh, Obed, Obadiah foretells the restoration of Israel and obviously the establishment of God's kingdom yep. on Mount Zion and uh, and the fact that the house of Jacob will ultimately possess their mm. rightful inheritance, you know, and in yeah. fact that the Lord will end up ruling over all nations. Yeah, that's just, right. Yeah. You know. So it, it really emphasizes God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel and his ultimate victory over evil, even though yep. in the moment we might not see that. We can be confident God will do what he has promised to do. So, yep. Deliver yeah. as it finishes last verse. Deliverers mm. will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Yeah. Um, there's a, there are curses in Isaiah and in Ezekiel upon the upon Edom. And it says that it's going to be a place of graves. And if you go there today, yeah. it's famous, the area in the mountain area mm. there. It's a famous city of tombs. Mm. And, and it's it's desolate, completely desolate. And it's essentially a city of tombs. The fulfill, fulfillment, of, you know, exact fulfillment, really, of the that prophecy. Of the prophecy. And yeah. I think it's Ezekiel 35. And yet in the moment, they could probably have not imagined that. 
yeah. the, the Edomites could yeah. not have imagined their yeah. empire turning. I always think that when you know, I mean, yeah. Petra, that area of Petra is amazing to uh, to visit, and I'll be visiting it with a tour group later uh, this year. And I just always think of that prophecy because it's just so true. It's yeah. a city of tombs, and you yeah. think, wow, this is this is fulfilled prophecy that I'm walking through here. Well, Jeremiah, let's move into Jeremiah, and we're gonna yep. we're gonna try and cover uh, chapters one to five today mm. in in Jeremiah. Uh, now, the book of Jeremiah was probably written somewhere around six twenty six BC, or, mm. or or started there. I mean, mm. Jeremiah was prophesying in Judah for probably forty years mm. until he was finally taken as a prisoner to Egypt. Mm. We would think, and he probably died there. Uh, yep. That's a reality of it. It's actually the longest book of the Bible written by a single author. And there's quite a few parallels between Jeremiah and the story of Jeremiah here and actually Jesus. Mm. Uh, you know, both of them wept over Jerusalem. Both of them foretold the imminent destruction of Jerusalem um, and the level of grief that they both shared mm. about the broken world that yep. was in their time is mm. is in, it, evident in the in the words of Jeremiah here. Mm. Now, Jeremiah wasn't, you know, a particularly from a wealthy kind of family. He was... Mm. Um, he was pretty much a fairly insignificant priest in mm. in reality from a from a village, yeah. uh, not 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 that well known in reality. But um, and and in fact, a bit like M- Moses, he yeah. really doubted his ability to do That's what right. yeah. God wanted him to do. So, it's 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 very sad in a way. The trajectory of his whole ministry is yeah. sad because it's like the story of Israel, but in reverse, the story of Israel up to that point, but in reverse, right. essentially, because he he starts his ministry in a time of prosperity yep. and ends up back in Egypt. You know, it's, that's a great point. It's yeah, very yeah. sad yeah. in a way. And, and in fact, that's, you know, he's essentially bringing f- pretty bad news mm. for the immediate, mm. but he's got some remarkable things to say about what's beyond that period. Uh, Jeremiah's famous for, predicting the length of the time of the exile. Yes. Um, so the Babylonians first came in and, and took over the air and took their first few, their first captives in 605, uh, which is a, probably around when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and those guys were taken. Pr- pretty much the first exiles, um, you know, were, were about that 605. And, and it was about, you know, by the time the uh, the exiles returned, it's you pr- you're just within 70 years. Yeah. And, and um, he predicted the seventy-year, seventy-year exile, exile. and mm-hmm. so, and this is actually, you know, in after this is these are the sorts of things that cause these prophets to become in later generations so esteemed, because in a sense, the test for a prophet, the mosaic test for a prophet, is if what they say comes true, yeah. uh, you'll know that they're a prophet, and uh, you know, you're giving. You know, you're giving a specific seventy years, and and you'll be back. That's and and also, people don't did ne- up to that point. They never came back from exile. Exile was a permanent thing. You were right. assimilated, right? And uh, you were it. taken into captivity. You were assimilated into the nations, and you were never heard of again from again. Right. Uh, so there was there was no you know precedent really for a nation ever ever returning, and yet. He predicted 70 years. Talk about a bold, bold oh, yeah. uh, promise. And you mentioned the parallel with Jesus, of course, because remember Jesus predicts uh, the within this generation all of these things, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Yep. that uh, these things are going to happen. And uh, 40 generation was understood, 40 understood as 40 years, and it was, it was right on 40 years. So, you know, you see Jeremiah doing the same sort of thing. I mean, you would not have wanted to be a prophet. No, so now I've said this no. so many times to you before. <laughs> this is not, and and because there, there are all these false prophets, you know. Yes. Uh, obviously, um, 
making good somehow out out of you know doing well, maybe making money or whatever. But the real guys. Man, what they went through. Well, they uh, weren't telling people what they wanted to hear. They no, were telling exactly. people the truth. Yeah. You know? And they really, really suffered uh, mm-hmm. for it. And mm-hmm. so uh, this is very much the case with Jeremiah. I mean, as, as we'll see, he went through all sorts of terrible things mm-hmm. uh, that happened to him. And God forewarned him that, that was gonna, it was going to be... Absolutely, uh, you know, a, a yeah, yeah, challenge that's right. for him. Uh, you yeah. know, the fact that he, he told him that he, he wasn't to marry and wasn't to have children, and, and it, you know, there was a lot of restriction on his life. But you know, in verse five, it's amazing. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. But still, he's yeah. Uh, no thanks. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I can't do this. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, particularly if he, if he's heard about what happened to Isaiah and, and no no doubt he would have uh, you know yes. Isaiah of course was you know was martyred during um, Manasseh's reign and mm, mm. but it's also you know there's a timidity here I, I just don't have the kind of boldness I mean this is yes. you know prophets go and speak to kings right and yeah. this is a guy of no repute or yeah, totally. uh, I, he's, he, he feels that he, he's he's obviously a young man at this point of time no one listens to young people i'm not part of the nobility Mm. wrong guy god yeah yeah. like wrong guy you mean someone else (laughs) that's right there there must be another jeremiah's (laughs) i I mean you know i've I've always loved the prayer of moses in response to the same call he simply says oh lord please send someone Someone else else. (laughs) and i think uh jeremiah was uh was the same now it's it's interesting that uh, the response, and this is the, this first chapter, is really the call of Jeremiah. Yes, and you know he says to him, "Do not be afraid, for I am with you and will rescue you," declares the Lord. And mind you, that doesn't mean that he he's spared no. a lot of suffering, which no. is interesting. Yes, um, but he's rescued in order to fulfil his, his ministry. Of yep. course, it, it goes on to say, "And then the Lord reached uh, out his hand and touched, touched my mouth, mouth, and he said mm-hmm. to me, I put my words in your mouth. See, today I, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, mm-hmm. to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Mm-hmm. Man, what, that, what an amazing level of authority is given to this prophet. And then it's interesting, Stu, that he goes through a little bit of a test. Yes, uh, or, or a you know try. Let's Have try this out. Yeah. Have a go now. What do you and see? so yeah. that's right. Uh, what yeah. so he, he says the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? He says I see the branch of an almond tree. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Then he says again, uh, the word of the and, and you think an an almond tree is there something about fruitful? It's actually. You know, it's it's a bit of a test to make yes. sure that he's re, you know receptive. Interpreting the scene. Yep. Um, then the word of the Lord comes to me again. What do you see? I see a, that a, I see a pot that is boiling. Uh, it is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, "From the north, disaster will be poured out onto all who live in the land." Uh, this is a big theme, of course, isn't it? In throughout Jeremiah, is that he is predicting the uh, the incursion of the Babylonians. Babylonians. Mm. Now, the Babylonians were actually in the east, but uh, Assyria was in the yeah, north. like well, Assyria was still in the east as well. But yep. in order to come, they come down, down from the north, right? Because you don't, you never come across the desert, so yes. the the they would have to come down from the north. So, um, so yes, they're they're definitely coming uh, from the north, even though their point of origin is in the east, and so that really sets up the uh, the main theme of. Jeremiah's ministry is that he is a prophet that is preaching to this people a message of repentance mm. in the light of impending judgment. Judgment's yep. coming. Yep. Uh, in fact, in some sense, judgment is inevitable 
yes. uh, by this stage. Uh, it is coming. God has said that he would spare a remnant. Um, so this is largely about who's going to be part of that remnant and, and, and how you're going to fare when the, when nation, the disaster comes. Yeah, for the yeah. nation collectively, it's done. Yeah, really. that's right. Yeah, yep. judgment is absolutely going to come. So it's, yeah, that's right. It's mm-hmm. done for the nation. But mm-hmm. um, but there's still there's still the opportunity for people to repent. And throughout this, there's this, uh, there's this plea. Just before um, we come out of that chapter and into chapter two, obviously he, he makes it really clear to... Jeremiah, that he's that it's going to be difficult, that the people are going to fight against him, but that he needs to stand up yeah. and speak boldly, and God's going to protect him as he as he mm, delivers this right. word. And then, sort of the final part of the chapter, kind of now get ready, it's time, stand up. Yeah, you know, he called the call to action, basically. And one of the things that I love, Stu, about this book is the and and this is this is true actually of prophetic books in here. It's one of the main things that I get. Uh, and, and I find so impacting about the prophetic books, and it's particularly the case about the book of Jeremiah, is because it's essentially dictated discourse. Not, not, all, not all of the right. um, scriptural material is necessary like that. It comes some, some is what uh, is, is almost like this deputated, you, you get to write like the letters of Paul. He yes. has the authority to write that he writes under divine inspiration, yes. but it's very much Paul. With prophetic oracles, it's very directly the word of it's it's dictated right. the word of God, yeah. and so you get this very direct sense of the heart of God, and this is what we see. So that is so moving to me in the book of Jeremiah is the grief. It is the grief of God over His people. The, here, here are the first. Uh, the first verses, the word of the Lord came to me, go proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault? Did your ancestors find in me yeah. that they strayed from me? It's and you see, he's appealing to them. Yeah. You know what fault did you find down in verse seven? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and you defiled my land, mm-hmm. and you made my inheritance detestable. And so there's this there's this grief, you know. And down in verse thirteen, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So, in other words, he's saying, I proved to them to be a sure source of life. Yep. I proved that to them, and yet they've swapped me out for these broken cisterns that are just completely unreliable. And of course, he's referring to idols there, the other gods of the other nations yeah. uh, that they exchanged yeah. for That's right. their God. And so, you know, he's saying, verse 17, have you not brought this uh, on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God? He mm-hmm. says, verse 19, your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. In a sense, you know, he's saying, this is, I, I don't want to, I don't want this for you, but you have actually brought this uh, upon yourself. Well, was there a part where really maybe the the people of Judah at the time were actually starting to get angry at God because he just wasn't coming through because they kind of had their feet in two camps and God wasn't a mm. God of two camps. And so they were almost trying to say, where is where is God if he's going to protect us from? You know, I, I'm not sure whether there was a sense of God going, hang on a minute, let's just look at the history here of... Yeah, is that you- a kind of a sense of what might have been going on there? Because it feels like God's kind of trying to remind yeah. them that, hey, hang on a minute, you're telling me that I'm not doing right by you but hang on here's what i have done and here's now what 
you're yeah, doing. That's right, because it, it's it kind of caught, yes. you know, the language of the courtroom. Yeah, it uh, is. Well, no, they didn't have courtrooms, but uh, of trial, essentially, because yeah. yeah. he says in verse 9, I bring these charges yes, uh, against you. And he's, yeah. he's asking them to answer these, uh, these charges. Mm. And so he says in verse 20, long ago, you broke off your yoke. You've, you broke off the yoke long ago. You tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. He's saying long ago because this whole time you've not, yeah. you've not been faithful. Yeah. I, I have been faithful. He shows that. He says, but you haven't been. So this was just, mm. uh, this would have been after <clears throat> Josiah's reforms. Now we've got, it's starting, it's already started to head back in the wrong yeah. direction. So, yeah. And, and even, even in a sense, uh, because he prophesied during the time of, of, of Josiah. Josiah. Now, mm-hmm. now, we said when we were talking about um, Zephaniah, yeah. there's still work to do. Yes. You know, it's not a in the time task. of Josiah, you know, there's there's a hard word to bring because the yep. people were very idolatrous. I mean, jo- yep. Josiah's doing his best to turn mm-hmm. this tide. But as we know, he do- he doesn't, you know. Yes. Yep. And, th- you know, there's a core group uh, too far, really. who, who will go into exile and really carry mm-hmm. the seeds of revival who do benefit from Josiah's and, and that do listen to these words. Yep. So we've got to remember that there is a core group here and amongst those is, is uh, Daniel, Daniel and Shadrach and yep. Meshach and Abednego. These guys are heeding these mm. words mm. Uh, and they're going to take that into into exile. exile in fact the prayer of daniel in chapter 9 is awakened by the words of jeremiah okay. when he sees the 70 year prophecy because he realizes uh that that's kind of nearly up and right. so he prays uh, right. accordingly for the you know for his people so you know there's this uh, trial kind of language here God is emphasizing the fact that they've they've turned away. It's interesting. I went through, Stu, and I actually highlighted where, wherever there was an imperative, uh, but like an, yeah, instruction. Uh, yep. an instruction or, a, or an ex- exhortation. And uh, and this is what I got in the first part. So verse 2 here, it's, it's interesting to isolate, to pull yeah, all the yeah. imperatives out, right, yeah. and to see what you get. Uh, verse 4, hear the word of the Lord. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Listen to God. Then down in verse 19, consider and realize. That's another imperative. Consider. Mm. So hear the word of the Lord. Consider and realize. Uh, then uh, verse 25, do not run. You know, Do not run until your feet are bare and right. your throat is, is dry. So stop, stop running away from me. And then again, you of this generation, verse 31, consider the word of the Lord in verse Chapter t- chapter that's in uh, chapter sorry three. that's in chapter that was three. in chapter two in chapter three just to give a bit of a sense of that's the trajectory good. of this uh, verse twelve return faithless Israel declares the Lord uh, verse thirteen acknowledge your guilt and then again verse fourteen return faithless people so notice the the uh, the goal here actually is still God pleading for them to return and the way that this is framed is very relational. This is actually looking for a relational reconciliation here. It's not just it's not just start obeying me, do better initially, actually. What God is asking, I just you acknowledge your guilt, right? Uh, and by that he means acknowledge the guilt of generations. Yes. That always meant that it was never just uh, acknowledge the guilt your own personal guilt. guilt. It was always collective, which is interesting because I think further down there's a prayer of collective repentance repentance further on that I'll note. Now that's, I just, that it's important to mark that Stu, because this is really the key to 
the revival that happens later on is that they acknowledge that generation in exile, even though they didn't necessarily cause that, but particularly around the time of towards the end of the exile and when Daniel prays that prayer in Daniel chapter 9, confessing this, he's confessing really before God and he's confessing generations of sins. There's no, oh, yeah, all the terrible things that they did back and weren't they even, no, no, Mm. it's fully owned. I I choose to own this multi-generational sin and Mm. and I will confess it on behalf of generations. Mm. It's a powerful, powerful thing because what happens then is that you then are empowered to receive the grace of God into Subsequent generations, the yes. promise, as um, Peter says in Acts chapter two, the promise is to you and your children. Mm. He calls them to repentance, mm. just like Jeremiah calls yep. them to repentance, relational repentance. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Mm. The promise is to, and, and he says, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the promise is to you and, and your children, children after yeah. you. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. um, and and actually, the Lord, the Lord says that at the uh, sort of halfway through chapter two, He says, "I will bring a case against you, your children's children." So He's, he's yeah. He's, that's where He says, "This is not just about your individual personal that's right. sin. This is about the collective sin of a yeah. nation." Yeah. So how so how this generation would respond was going to really determine the fate of the of, future generations. Uh, of the future generations. Mm. And you know, as we know, most didn't. Uh, turn back to God, but some did. This is the thing. Some did, right? Mm. And and uh, and and there was this group of young people, and and as I said, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are examples of that, mm. who really benefited from this and took this word into exile and led this remarkable revival. And and you know they had multi generational effect. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And so this very profound sort of multi-generational theme uh, that goes through here that I think is, uh, is worth noting. Looking at, at the way that this works, so God is expressing his grief over essentially what is mostly covenant unfaithfulness. It's, yeah. it's mostly their idolatry and turning away. There, there are, uh, and you know, he mentions like Isaiah, he mentions the injustices that come from that is a mm. theme that appears. Mm. But overly, it's relational. It's yeah. you've turned away from me. It's it's the language of unfaithfulness. You've prostituted yourself. Yeah, essentially. Right. He uses yeah. that analogy a lot through here, and 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 I think it's interesting because he he tries to he says like this and like this and like this as though he's trying to appeal to how they would feel if yeah. someone they loved. Had treated yeah. them that way. Yeah, that's know? right. So the beginning of chapter three mm. says, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Mm. Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord. It, this is interesting because he, because actually God is wanting them to return. That's right. He's exhorting them to return, mm. right? Mm. But what he's saying here is that you can't just expect me to bless you, and yeah. and because in a sense, what's happening here is that they've lived in this state of unfaithfulness. Yeah. They're coming back to God, saying, "Well, God, come on, where's the blessing? Uh, where's our blessing? Exactly yeah, you're, right. you're meant to bless us." And, yeah. and he's saying, "With no sense of repentance." But hang on, you've remorse. just got yeah. married. You've, you've yeah. you know, you've covenanted yourselves to these other gods, and you've been worshiping these other gods. And are you going to now return to me in that way? But of course, the invitation is to return properly uh, th- throughout uh, this first part. It, it's because. He goes on to say, this is where he goes on to say, just a few verses later, uh, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. So, mm. But he's saying, but 
sure, come back to me. I, I'm the, the door's not closed. You come back to me by all means, even with your needs, but only, he says in verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods. Under every spreading tree, you have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, verse 14, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Uh, I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own. It's just so, you know, he's, he's, there's such a tenderness uh, to these, to these oracles. It's actually beautiful, you know. He says, he goes on to say in verse 19, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. This is actually, this is amazing because you don't get a lot of this level of intimacy or or the promise of this. I mean, there's, I think it's implied, you know, God as the father of Israel is very much implied. It's still not common enough so that when Jesus comes and he starts calling God Father, that's a little bit controversial. Yes. What you're calling God Father, that's just that level of intimacy is uh, is right. a bit too much for the Jewish leaders at the time. And yet it's not unbiblical because, uh, we, as we see here, God wants yeah. his people to call him Father. Father. And yet they've gone the other way. So he's wanting to draw them into greater intimacy. That's the trajectory. Mm. Yeah, in, but they've... You know they've spurned that, and and to some degree, I think there's an element here where, as you say, they just want to come. They, you know, now they as they see these things coming before them, you know, the the potential of disaster. They're sort of running back to God as though He's just going to pick up where He left off without a real sense of repentance mm. and and remorse. And I think we can be guilty of that too. We kind of disregard God yeah. for large chunks of our lives, and when something starts to look like it's going wrong, suddenly we're wondering why God isn't showing up and, yeah. and helping us. And yeah. it's like because God wants a relationship, not just to jump in and here and there and yeah. fix things for us. You know, you know. absolutely. It's interesting. That there's there's quite a bit of similar to what we said about Habakkuk. There's a bit of dialogue. In Jeremiah nice as well. well. I mean, he's because he is. He's also struggling with some of these things. Yes. Even he's he is and and he's receiving these things and and he's announcing them. But there's also an element of dialogue, and it's interesting here in verse 22 after he declares, "Return, faithless people! I will cure you of backsliding." Mm. I mean, that's an interesting promise, and it, mm. it uh, this gets expanded on in. For example, in chapter 31 later on where he talks about the essentially the outpouring of the Spirit, something similar to yes. Ezekiel's promise of the new heart. Okay, yes. So that's anticipated there. I will cure you. So it's like you've got a disease. It says I think it's in chapter 17, you know, that the heart of the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked yes. and beyond cure. Yes. Right? Okay. But here he says, I but I will cure you. Even though, in a sense, they've they've got a heart condition that's beyond cure, as he yeah. says later on, the promise of a cure is announced here, uh, and this this is where we turn back to Jeremiah, and and in a sense, he's saying on behalf of his people, yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely, uh, the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Uh, from our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our... So he's acknowledging this. He's saying, uh, verse 25, let us lie down in our shame. Let our distra- disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth to this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. 
And so right here, Jeremiah is essentially confessing on behalf of his people in the same way as Daniel would do in Daniel chapter 9, in the same way actually that Ezra would do as well. Uh, when he returned to Jerusalem in famous story of Ezra, he comes back and they're all this is in the post-exilic period yeah. and they're in a bad way. And he confesses their sins as though they're his. But what's notable here is this, as I said before, Stu, this idea of corporate sin. sin yes. We have sinned against yes, the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors, from our youth to this day. We have not obeyed the Lord our God. And from our youth, he means the youth of the nation. Yes, the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so there's this, you know, corporate aspect. He's not separating him. You know, he's uh, genuinely repenting, even though he's not one of the idolaters. He is genuinely. Uh, or, or, or at least, I mean, we, I don't think we need to assume that he was perfect by any measure. No. Um, but uh, he is repenting on behalf of his people. This is what God wants. Uh, he wants us to actually recognize our sin and our disgrace mm. and our shame. Yeah. Uh, because then we can take fully hold of his redemption and salvation. Yeah. As we move into chapter four again, I've just highlighted the imperatives here as they continue just to get a sense of the movement of what God is calling for here. So right at the start, if you, if you, Israel will return, then return to me, right? Mm. If you want to, if you will. And because he's already talked about what that willingness uh, implies and he's going to go on and elaborate on what real returning means because it doesn't just mean, oh, things are going badly. I better come back to God to get. Dear you God, know, help me. Yeah, yeah, so that I get help. Mm. Now, God's willing to help, absolutely, but there's a bigger issue here. And he says in verse 3, Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. Mm. Right? Uh, you know, break up your unplowed ground. He's talking about hard-heartedness, yeah. right? Uh, their, their hearts of like thorny you know, like thorny ground. This is, you know, this is connected with Jesus in a sense. Yes, parable. You know, tells a parable about the seed among the thorns and so forth, and that's a bit of an allusion to this. Yeah. Um, uh, to this, uh, what to what uh, Jeremiah says here, and then another imperative down in verse five: sound the trumpet throughout the land, cry aloud, and say, "Gather together, mm. uh, raise the signal." Verse six: uh, to go to Zion. Verse eight. Put on sackcloth, lament and wail. So he's, the the imperative is here: call a fast, uh, yeah. call a time of repentance. This is what is going to Happen. be the key yeah. uh, from from this point forwards. Yeah. And then in verse fourteen, uh, and the, another imperative: Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. And you know, of course, there, there are promises. Uh, from here on, about a, a new covenant where God answers His faithful remnant and you know cleanses their hearts and so forth. Yeah. It is moving because there is this constant plea of the heart of God. I just want to underscore that again. Yeah. This is uh, a God who is grieved over His children. This isn't. This isn't just you know the angry uh, you know tyrant who hasn't got his way and so he's you know just looking for an excuse to you know inflict punishment none of that the heart of god here uh just bleeds for his people chapter five opens up go up and down to the streets of jerusalem well just before we jump into chapter five just the end of chapter four we get jeremiah's kind of psalm of lament almost that he 
that he writes. Um, yes. You know, talking about the anguish that he sees and, ah, and yeah, the disaster yeah. that's coming Sorry, I, I skipped them. over that, Stu. Yeah, verse 19. Oh, my anguish, my mm. anguish, I writhe. This is the dialogue uh, mm. that I talked about before. Oh, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. This is personal stuff for Jeremiah. I mean, yeah, he feels right. this. Yeah. And he feels it not just for his people, but as a prophet, he is he is feeling the what grief God's, of God. God what God's yeah. feeling, exactly. You yeah. know, he's filled with a sense of the grief of God. Mm. Uh, he declares in verse twenty-two, "My people are fools; they do not." Uh, well, this is this is God expressing the heart of God. Yeah. My people are fools; they do not know me. They are senseless children; they have no understanding. Again, this uh, expression uh, of grief there. As we move into uh, into chapter, chapter five, five, he's going to continue. Talking about the reasons, it's important in reading through this because uh, people have said to me they find this sort of material a little bit monotonous uh, because there is a lot of re- repetition. This is essentially, you know, this is an expression of God's grief over His people. And I think it's important to hear that and and to allow the imagery to really sink in mm. and and express the heart of God. Chapter 5, verse 1, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Mm. Uh, sounds like, uh, it does. It um, sounds like Abra- Ab- Abraham and, and, and the uh, angels beside Sodom, you know, look Sodom overlooking God. Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. Uh, you know, if but Lord, if there are even ten righteous people, will you? He gets mm. down to ten. You know, mm. starts at fifty. Yep. He says, "Well, yes, if I can even find ten, uh, I'll spare Spirit. this city." Of course, ten are not found, and, and the city is destroyed. And so that's an allusion to that. Um, you know, if I even find one, you know, righteous mm. person, mm. then uh, I, I will forgive this city. It's kind of hyperbole. I mean, uh, I'm sure there are, there are people who of a heart to repent, but even for those people, they're not claiming perfection. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no yes. one in that sense. So uh, there's no one in that sense who is uh, without sin. They're, they're all they're all being indicted together here. And this isn't this isn't a statement of hopelessness. No, uh, this is a statement in order to say you all you all need to do this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. because not one of you ha- uh, has has fully kept this covenant, mm. um, and so. He continues just looking down on on chapter five, and we'll 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 finish at the end of chapter five and uh, continue uh, in our next episode, uh, Stu. But he's repeating through here that the uh, you know Jeremiah says, okay, he, he does that, yep. walks through the streets of Jerusalem. Yep. He says in verse five, so I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God, yeah. but with one accord they too had broken off the yoke and mm-hmm. torn torn mm-hmm. off their bonds. I mean, see, Jeremiah's discovering this himself. Go, go, you know, go and try and find, go and exactly. talk so to them. So this is Jeremiah actually doing that first yeah, that's thing. Right. Go, go and see if you can find someone. Yeah. And so he's working through who yeah. and actually finding none. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. And so... God's reply in verse 7 is, why should I forgive you? Your mm. children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. Uh, I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery. It's interesting actually here, interesting little feature to note. Uh, why should I forgive you? Your children uh, have forsaken because he, And he's including, he's speaking to Jeremiah, okay? Yeah. He's not separating Jeremiah from, from his people, else. from yeah. everyone else here. Mm. 
Why should I forgive you? This is plural, you, you know, you included with them. Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I will, I supplied all their needs. And then it goes to they. So it starts with you and then they. To make very clear, actually, that Jeremiah's absolutely, he's included uh, in this, in this oracle. It goes on. To say, verse 10, go through her vineyards and ravage them, but do not destroy them completely. Strip off her branches, for this people do not belong to the Lord. The people of Israel and the people of Judah have been utterly unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord, they said. He, they said he will do nothing. So they're even this saying... This is all the false prophets oh, look, now yeah, that, yeah. that were That's around. Right. And we, 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 we saw that in, in Kings when we were working through that, that you yeah. know, around Josiah's time, there was a lot of false prophets who were, as you said, when we started here, basically saying... Uh, whatever they thought the people wanted to hear because that's how they earned their living probably. Um, yeah. 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 So they're saying that uh, and then nah, in, in reply, uh, therefore this is what the Lord God Almighty says, because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire. He's yeah. talking to Jeremiah. Yeah. And these people, the wood that it consumes. Mm. Uh, and then he he says, uh, the people of Israel declares the Lord, I'm bringing a, a distant nation against mm-hmm. you, an ancient and enduring nation. Uh, and and this is where you get this prophecy um, and of of doom. And yet, verse eighteen. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. So there's the promise here of a remnant, remnant that will yeah. uh, that will survive. So very moving. I find these early chapters very yeah. moving. And I think it's easy for us perhaps to look back and go, "Well, they deserved it." But you know, you can see the parallels to us mm. today in modern society where. We, particularly in Western modern society, where we can tend to think that we don't need God, we've got it all sorted, yeah. and I'll just call out to God when I need help, something that I, I've tried everything else and that yeah. didn't work first. Uh, you can totally see we're not that dissimilar to those people. Yeah, that's that, right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, and I think again, there's a real key here in as much of uh, as I've emphasised the heart of God, relational reconciliation is what God is after here. But it's relational reconciliation, not just with individuals, isolated individuals, but with the people. It's God reconciling himself to his family. It's important for each of us individually to do our business with God and to bring confession and so forth. But actually, there's something to say for corporate confession as well and for for us not separating ourselves off in any way and even allowing our confession of sin to become the means through which grace invades this space and brings about renewal and revival. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive. Thrive.